Hey everybody, Magnus here. What I'm about to say is elitist, arrogant, and probably totally uncalled for. In other words, typically me, but here goes anyway. People are stupid. The common man, Joe Sixpack, the guy on the street, Call him whatever you like, but he's pretty much a total moron. Most people, it's about all they can manage to stay above water most of the time. They can barely manage their own lives. It's the man in a thousand that transcends, who achieves. They're rare. Excellence and brilliance are not man's default state of being. Never have been never will be. As a corollary to that, most people have no business whatsoever judging or evaluating art. They just don't have the intellectual faculties for the job. And my hypothesis is most of them know that. Deep down inside in a place that they don't like acknowledging, they know damn good and well how average they are. For example, it's beyond your average dumb shit to analyze a novel, film, or comic book. It's similarly beyond them to grasp analyses of the same. Don't expect them to think. And don't expect them to understand when you think. And don't misunderstand. None of this is lost on the broad masses. As I say, they're well aware, if only on a subconscious level, that they're achingly mediocre. So, to make up for that, they're reduced to commenting on aesthetics. To wit, they can't explain what something means, but they can sure as shit tell you what they think of how it looks. I won't name names, but a dude I know only ever comments on visuals, be it comics, movies, or whatever. The most superficial bullshit is all this rube can manage. The best example is Clark's black outfit from Smallville's ninth season. <laughs> what is this, the Matrix? <laughs> In his mind, this specimen has just made an unassailable argument. And so because of that, responding that Clark's black outfit in the ninth season is representative of him turning his back if only temporarily, on humanity, emotion, and his old relationships in favor of superficially accepting what he thinks is his destiny, by donning Kryptonian formal wear used by prosecutors to judge and sentence criminals in court, and how that visually echoes and reinforces Clark's own emerging worldview of judgment, and I would say borderline totalitarianism, is completely fucking lost on this guy. I'd be wasting my breath and his time breaking all of that down for him. Don't cast your pearls before swine. All of this is a long way of saying that that's pretty much where we are, I would say with the modern Superman reboot and the DC Cinematic Universe at large. A bunch of butthurt prima donners are upset that their cherished version of the character was put out to pasture 
a move, I might say, that should have happened back in 2006, but didn't. And they're joined by cackling hyenas of similar intellectual mediocrity and a bizarre circle jerk of self-satisfied smuggery. It doesn't matter that Aquaman's movie outfit could be something temporary that he wears on his way to developing a more traditional uniform. It's irrelevant that even if this is THE Aquaman uniform for live action, it's no more radical a departure than other beloved superhero outfits in live action. The point is that arguing with these dim-witted, glassy-eyed, knuckle-dragging, cave-dwelling, mouth-breathing troglodytes will accomplish precisely dick. So don't bother. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears Bunny to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But some of you have factually pointed out that, I, that actually most of what I discuss seems to be related specifically to DC Comics. And you know what? You're right. Now, Yeah, I did talk about Spider-Man comics in my last six episodes uh, series. That much is totally true. But that was basically a cutesy little gimmick I came up with to build up to my discussion of the Batman-Spider-Man crossover, Disordered Minds. The idea I had was just to, um, I would hope it's kind of self-explanatory, basically was to alternate between Spider-Man and Batman comics until I reached their crossover issue. Nothing more complicated than that. Other than that, though, if records be checked, I haven't really talked very much about Marvel Comics, especially lately. So, I guess my attitude about it was, why not give that a shot? But, before I get too far into that and the subject matter for this episode, now's probably not a bad time to talk about some of what I've got planned for this year. See, by now, 2015 is pretty well underway. And believe it or not, most of the stuff that you've listened to up to this point, most of those episodes were all recorded back in 2014. And there's a reason for that, you know? The name of the game, especially back then, 
was to get as much content recorded and knocked out, as much of that stuff as possible, to make sure that I can keep hitting a weekly release schedule. You see, it's important to me that my show is available for download every Tuesday. It's important. But I'd like to think that I've upped my game as a podcaster since I first started out. Which was nearly two, two years ago. Can you believe that? But anyway, I'd like to hope that I've gotten better at all this. So ideally, what that means is that I'm not going to have to rely quite as much on the element of surprise to entertain everybody. That's what I'm hoping for, anyway. But anyway, so here's a little uh, a little glimpse of what I have in store for 2015. But <clears throat> before I get into specifics, I want all of you to understand that all of this is tentative. Anything can change at any time. So just because I'm mentioning what I plan to do here doesn't automatically make it guaranteed to happen. I have a plan. And plans change. All the time. I'm just saying that I'm excited about what's on the agenda right now, and I want you guys to be excited about it too. And as always, if you have any requests for stuff that you'd like me to talk about, feel free to send it in. You can hit me up at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Just send me an email, and I'll see about working in your suggestions. Anyway, so here we go. Over the course of March, what I'm hoping that I uh, can find time to uh, talk about is Aquaman, Time and Tide, that miniseries. And for those of you who don't know, I should need to do some research on this, but my understanding is that was intended to be a reboot of Aquaman, and it didn't catch on at first. DC attempted another reboot, and that really sank like a stone. So they came back to Time and Tide, came back to Peter David, and they said, okay, well, let's dust off your idea and see where we go with it, you know? So, uh, they had that coming. Uh, that That's in the uh, pipeline right now. I'm also going to uh, talk about, and this is now actually starting to get into uh, the month of April. What I want to do towards the beginning of the month of April is uh, talk about uh, Daredevil Season 1. Now, I'm trying to get a uh, certain guest knocked out. I'm trying to get him on, on board with uh, recording... Uh, this episode with me because for those of you who don't know daredevil season one is an original graphic novel and there's a lot of stuff there to talk about now look here's the thing i consider myself to be a big daredevil fan but the problem is i don't consider myself to be a big daredevil expert you know there are people out there and it's not even they're not even all that hard to find they can send me to freaking school when it comes to Daredevil. And so, uh, yeah, I'm bringing my fandom of and enthusiasm for the character of Daredevil to that episode. But I've, it, it just kind of felt like, you know, since what we're going to be talking about is basically Daredevil Season 1, and just so I can be clear on that, I mean, like I said, the original graphic novel called Daredevil Season 1. It's nothing to do with TV shows or anything like that. But since I'm going to be talking about Daredevil Season 1 and there are all these little winks and nods and shout-outs to other bits of continuity, I thought it would be worthwhile to bring a uh, 
a uh, a Daredevil fan of note uh, into this episode with me. So that's what I'm hoping I can I can get scheduled. That's set for the beginning of April. So you know, keep an eye out uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, moving a little bit further along, you know, mid to late April. Um, I'm actually going to have two episodes of my uh, Smallville Season 2 retrospective. I'm actually going to have two of those coming out back-to-back. And again, totally tentative, but what we're looking at for Episode 92 and uh, Episode 93 is that both of those are going to be Smallville Season 2, you know, the overview, Parts 4 and 5, respectively, have those coming out back-to-back. And the reason for that is because, basically, that's sort of the beginning of the build-up to episode 100, and I wanted to, basically, I, I the, the way I have this show structured is I do six episodes, then I do a, an episode of the Big Book Report, then I do an episode about Smallville, that's number eight, and then I start all over. Then I do another six episodes about whatever, another Big Book, more Smallville, start all over, wash, rinse, repeat, right? Well, that would, if I were to rigidly stick to that, that would make basically an episode of the Big Book Report episode 100. And that's really not what I want. So um, to sort of balance things out, you know, and kind of pad my number a little bit, I really could have done this a couple of different ways, but uh, what I decided to do was have two episodes of the uh, Smallville retrospective have those come out back to back then I do uh, six episodes you know about whatever and I'll get more into those in just a minute Um, and then after that comes episode number 100 so that's that now as to the episodes building up to number 100 I'm not completely sure what all of those are going to be just yet I mean don't get me wrong I'm looking at a list of things and I have I even have entries on there for episodes 94 95 96 97 and uh, 98 99 but I'm not sure if these are actually going to uh, stick around all that long. Now, what I'm pretty much committed to at this point is uh, talking about uh, Star Wars, the Han Solo trilogy by uh, A.C. Crispin. And I've and, and again, I've got a, a, a guest star in mind for that. I'm um, hoping I can, you know, finagle that and get everything sorted out there. So, fingers crossed. But the reason for talking about... Um, you know, the A.C. Crispin Han Solo trilogy, which, for those of you who don't know, that's a series of, like, prose novels. Um, on paper, so to speak, that's actually sort of foreign to my format here because I'm because my mantra is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, right? Well, nowhere in there is it listed books, like prose novels, right? But I figure no one's going to really mind if I bend the rules all that much, especially not for Han Solo and everything. So, And I guess the reason for talking about it is because I don't want to get too much into it here because I want to save most of my comments for the episode itself, but I'm in fucking love with that Han Solo trilogy. <clears throat> now, I'll be the first to admit that it's got... Some problems and weaknesses, but honestly, a lot of those are not A.C. Crispin's fault. And so, there you have it. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think, you know, some of the things that sincerely could have been done better in those books, I don't think all of them are her fault. 
and by and large, they don't really, you know, the uh, the I guess problems that 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 the that trilogy has. It's more like quibbles than anything. So it, you know, it's not like they're major, you know, problems. And I have to say, considering that we're talking about an expanded universe Star Wars book, it's the it, that's a pretty rare type of comment. Usually, they're just crap. So anyway, I, there's no nice way to say it. So anyway, so moving on from there, um, I'm going to uh, do episode number 100, the details of which I'm actually keeping top secret for right now. Uh, I'll talk more about that as we get you know closer to it. But for right now, um, you know, just know that the way that it is right now, and again, all of this is subject to change. Episode number 100 is scheduled for release on uh, Tuesday, June the 16th, 2015. And so, right now, that's the plan. So, just something to keep in mind here. So, then from there, shortly thereafter, I'm going to start the Smallville Season 3 retrospective. Um, And in fact, I've actually got a decent bit of that actually recorded right now as I you know, record this. I've actually got, you know, that first part of, uh, or at least part of, you know, part one for a season three in that retrospective. I've actually got that, uh, the beginnings of it anyway, uh, got that recorded. And so I'm actually pretty happy about that. In fact, overall, I'm really happy with, uh, you know, the direction my Smallville retrospectives are going in. And especially as, you know, season three starts getting underway, I suspect you will be more excited about it too. So, um, more on that in just a bit, though. Now, what I've decided, you know, is that starting with episode number 100, as far as, like, the main six episodes that I do are concerned, I wanted to start doing more uh, miniseries. So, I've got a shitload of miniseries that are uh, coming up and um, basically getting all of that, I guess, more of a theme for certain things going. So, the first major series that I have scheduled for 2015 right now, apart from the aforementioned Superman, Batman, or sorry, uh, Spider-Man, Batman thing, which I don't really think counts anyway, but whatever. As far as like a major like series is concerned, the first one is Extinction Level Event. That's going to kick off towards the beginning of uh, towards the beginning of July. And I'm going to talk about basically major event uh, storylines in comics, right? Major crossovers. And I'll be the first to admit, some of these are better than others. But overall, I think all of these have some type of redeeming value to them. And for this, actually, I'm actually looking to get uh, as many uh, co-hosts as possible. Because of everything I've ever done, I think a lot of other podcasters out there are going to have specific opinions about, you know, some of these crossovers. And so, uh, there you go. But I'm really excited about all of that. I mean, I don't want to talk about every single one of them because, again, this is all in flux right now. But so far, um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you three. I'll, I'll tell you three of the uh, of the ones that I'm talking about, that the, uh, three crossovers that I plan to talk about. There's going to be Legends, there's going to be House of M, and there's also going to be The Final Night. And so, looking forward to uh, 
all of those, Legends, House of M, and The Final Night. Obviously, there are going to be three other ones as well, but I'm going to actually play those kind of close to the vest right now. Got to give you something to come back for, right? And the idea behind this is that, you know, I haven't really talked a whole lot about, you know, these huge, major, gigantic crossovers, you know, and all that fun stuff. You know, I mean, that's actually pretty foreign uh, to the show. Usually I've talked about certain storylines and whatnot, but I haven't really gotten into the, you know, sort of blood and guts of, you know, these huge, major, epic miniseries type of crossover events, you know, that both of the companies... Uh, tend to do, and so that's the purpose of this. So, anyway, so I've got that on the docket. Then from there, the next episode, uh, the next ep- uh, six-episode sort of mini-series, it doesn't even have a name, but I'm thinking you can probably figure out what the theme of it is. It's basically women in comics, but women in comics is a sort of I don't know, that's a, just a stupid sort of title for a mini-series. So, I'll come up with something better. That hopefully doesn't sound patronizing, but anyway, so to start with, I'm going to talk about, um, let's see, this is Ms. Marvel, numbers 1 through 5, Supergirl, the Peter David series from the 90s, Supergirl, number 1 through 4, and actually those are the only two I'm going to tell you about, because the other ones are all sort of subject to change, but depending on how it works out, one of those episodes may be a sequel to an episode I've done in the past, ages ago, so... Just speaking in riddles on that one. So, anyway, so that's coming up. And honestly, I I gotta tell you, podcasting tends to be a little bit of a sausage fest. But if I can find some uh, uh, female uh, co-hosts for those episodes, I'd actually be kind of interested in doing that. You know, just getting their reference point on all of this. So, anyway, I don't know. We'll see see how that works out. Uh, From there... The next uh, miniseries, and now we're starting to get into November. The the women thing, that kicks off towards the beginning of September. This next miniseries, uh, this is going to kick off closer to uh, the beginning of uh, November. This is uh, It's All About Image. And I'm going to be talking about, I don't want to say the original offering of uh, Image Comics, because that's not really true. But at the same time, I am going to talk about some of the original Image comics that first came out. Then also talk about some of the Image comics that I collected a little bit later on. And just checking in on those. But uh, what you can take from this is that I'm going to talk about Spawn, numbers 1 through 4. The Shadowhawk miniseries. Uh, and Astro City. Now again, there are I'm looking at what the other ones are... Uh, scheduled to be, but I can't promise that I'm going to end up doing those, and I don't want to, you know, turn around and break a bunch of different promises, so, like I said, it's going to be Spawn, number one through four, the Shadowhawk miniseries, and then Astro City, and uh, that miniseries, the very first one by uh, Kurt Busiek, so, um, it's all about image, so that's what that one is, Uh, and then from there, actually looks like at this point we're starting to get very close to the end of 2015, uh, this next uh, uh, series is going to be uh, called A Valiant Effort, which, again, is going to be, as I hope the name would suggest, 1990s Valiant Comics. And so right now, like the way that it is right now, I'm going to be talking about Exo Manowar, Archer and Armstrong, and I haven't really made up my mind for sure what the other what the other uh, titles are going to be. I'm, it, 
I'm thinking I might talk about Ninjak, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. Not yet. So, uh, so that's pretty much that stuff. Uh, and again, this is another one of those things where I'm, I would like to get at least for, for a couple of these episodes, I'd like to get a uh, co-host or two. And, uh, because my intake of Valiant from back in the 1990s, it was pretty minimal. And the reason for that was because they tended to, to cost more than DC Comics. Another issue is that, so to speak, another issue is that um, I was I was basically sort of at a time and a place where I, I, I just didn't have income. I only had just so much that was given to me as allowance because you have to understand, a lot of this stuff was coming out when I was a kid. I was like 12, 13, 14 years old. And... Yeah, you get allowances for things, and you get paid for chores and all this other stuff, but it's not like you can go out and get a job to finance your 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 collecting. And so that was kind of the situation that I found myself in. And so, you know, the, the way I look at it is 1990s Valiant is something I would have probably collected if circumstances had permitted it. But they didn't. So, anyway, but that's where we are with it right now. It's the hand I've been dealt, and so... I'm just going to roll with it. But my reason for mentioning all of this is to say that somebody who was collecting the, uh, this stuff, you know, contemporaneously, like at the time, I would be, I would be up for that. You know, if, uh, you know, getting uh, getting them in at least for an episode or two. You know, uh, I, I'd be up for that. So that's that stuff. Uh, then at this point, we're really starting to get into uh, the beginning of 2016. Um, another uh, mini-series is going to be This is the End. And as the name would suggest, it's going to be basically... It was a sort of trendy thing to do in comics, especially back in the 90s, to take you know the main guy out of action for a little while and replace him with somebody else. And so that's sort of the theme of, of that, of that uh, series. And so um, the first part of it is going to be Superman... Doomsday. And yeah, I realize that the fucking trade has a different title to it, but I don't care. The comics, the original comics that I paid money for, those had the title Doomsday, and so that's what I go by. Anyway, so next up is uh, Batman Nightfall. And I may sprinkle in a little bit of Night Quest on that, but I'm not really too sure how that's going to shake out. I don't know. We'll see. The next up is going to be The Flash, Terminal Velocity. And as much as anything, I got to tell you, that one is, it was sort of a bait and switch on the part of uh, Brian Augustine, Mark Wade, and I guess DC in general. Everybody thought that they were going to, they, Mark Wade uh, and Brian Augustine, that they were going to follow the trend that was going on at the time, like I said, where, you know, your main guy is taken out of action Maybe temporarily, maybe permanently. And then he's replaced with someone else. And so everybody was expecting something like that uh, from Terminal Velocity. And that's, by by no stretch of the imagination, is that what happened. So, anyway. so But it, I, th- I really do enjoy that storyline. I think it's one of... I think it's... It, I, I, I'm not 
I, I'm not sure that I want. I would go so far as to say that it's the best of the Mark Wade Flash series, but it's pretty fucking good. It's it's somewhere in, in the top ten for sure. Terminal Velocity. It's because that really was the time when I think Wally really matured. You know, and well, that's not so much even that he matured. You could see how much he had matured. And so, because he, he took on roles in that story that I just don't think he was used to at the time. So, anyway. Moving right along. Uh, next up is going to be uh, Green Lantern, em- the uh, Emerald Twilight and Emerald Holocaust storylines. And, you know, getting uh, talking about those. And I've actually got a couple of ideas for a potential guest star on those. I'm not sure that I'm... Honestly, I'm not sure that I absolutely am going to need one. But it might be kind of interesting, so I don't know. But all around, um, you know, I kind of enjoy Emerald Twilight. I And I, I remember enjoying Emerald Holocaust the last time I read it. But then, keep in mind, that was like ten years ago. So, whatever you think that's worth. So, anyway, but the point is, I, I'm, I'm hoping that's actually going to be a pretty fun little episode. Next up is going to be uh, from my uh, This is the End miniseries here. Uh, Spider-Man, The Clone Saga. And this is going to be sort of a harder one to do. And the reason for that is because we call it The Clone Saga. But that's not really a very good name for for that stuff because it's not really a saga. I don't really think there's a continuous thread that's running through that entire thing. I've often thought that you might get, at least as far as accuracy is concerned... There's more juice to the idea of calling it the clone era, but I don't know. So, all around though, it's um, I'm I'm looking forward to this, but I'm suspecting I'm going to need some help. And the reason for that is because yes, I've read a good chunk of the Clone Saga, and I feel like I've got a decent perspective on it. But at the same time, this is one of those things that I think would benefit from a, a sort of discussion type of format, and so. I don't know. We'll see how that plays out, but I'm not really sure. I don't know. Anyway, moving on from there, uh, rounding out the uh, This is the End uh, miniseries is Wonder Woman uh, The Contest, the storyline called The Contest, where basically Artemis takes over. And I really can't tell you a whole lot about that story because fucking I've never read it. But I've heard mixed things about it, and like I said, I mean, I... The main reason for including it is it's part of that trend, again, from the 90s, where, you know, your main character, your main hero was taken out of action for a time and then replaced with somebody else. Well, that's fucking basically what happened in the contest. So that's the main reason for including it. And the other thing is, kind of like that women miniseries that I mentioned just a while ago, I haven't really talked a whole lot about uh, women in comics and so I'd kind of like to start balancing that out a little bit. So anyway, following that, and now we're, we really are balls deep into uh, 2016 at this point. This is a uh, miniseries called Ultra Magnus, where I talk about the uh, Malibu uh, comics Ultraverse. And so the way that it is right now, and who the hell knows how this one's going to shake out especially, I really don't know. But uh, so far, I've got Prime, Ultra Force, 
and I'm thinking about Freaks. Maybe some other ones, but Prime, Ultra Force, and Freaks are really the ones that I'm thinking I'm uh, that I'm uh, I'm thinking about covering right now. Now, obviously, there's going to have to be a lot more than that, but nevertheless, that's that's what that series is going to be all about. Basically, the uh, the uh, Malibu line of uh, Ultraverse comics, and so we'll see how all that works out, and then. And this is actually where I'm going to cut it off. I've got what I'm what I'm going to call, I don't know, the Brian Michael Bendis Appreciation Series, where, honestly, I feel like Brian Michael Bendis has gotten way too much shit for the types of stories that he tells and, the, and you know, his type of comics and everything. And I'm not saying the man walks on water. He's got his flaws just like anybody else. But at the same time, I, I feel like there was a point, and maybe less so lately, but in years past where it was sort of the trendy thing to do to to pick on Brian Michael Bendis. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to be part of that. And so, anyway, so to get into it, though, I'm going to be talking about New Avengers, uh, Volume 1, number 1 through 6, uh, Daredevil, Volume 2. Uh, 20, uh, numbers 26 to 31 I've, and wouldn't you know I'm blanking now on what that storyline is called but it basically is the beginning of the Brian Michael Bendis run on uh, Daredevil so there's that and then yeah there are other ones too but I'm going to again leave some of this to chance and see how it works out uh, there's also going to be Ultimate Spider-Man uh, number 18 to 13. The storyline is titled Learning Curve. So there's that. So now you might be asking yourself, why is it that I'm going to start the Brian Michael uh, Bendis Appreciation Series with Ultimate Spider-Man number 8 rather than number 1? Well, the reason for that is because this episode is going to be all about Ultimate Spider-Man number one through seven, uh, the title of which is Power and Responsibility. So that's actually why the Brian Michael Bendis Appreciation Series isn't going to have Ultimate Spider-Man number one in it. It's because this episode is going to have Ultimate Spider-Man number one in it. So hopefully that makes sense. Anyway, and so that's pretty much what I've got on tap for quite a while. Now, obviously, the list goes on from there. Uh, in fact... My list right now, it goes up to episode number uh, 376, and so, you know, put a pencil to it. It's just, I don't feel like going through, especially since that stuff especially is totally on the table. It could could change at any time. I mean, who the hell knows? But for a goodly bit of 2015 and then going into 2016, that's pretty much what I have in store for everything, and so... Hoping you guys are going to enjoy it because, um, honestly, I know this is going to be a lot of work for me to get sorted out. But at the same time, I really can't think of a better way to spend the next you know, year or two of this podcast than going through these series and talking about comics. And honestly, I don't have a whole lot of familiarity with some of these. In fact, several of these comics I've never even, I've never even read before, ever. And so I'm going to be coming at this maybe from a different angle than some of you are some of you i think will have read a lot of this stuff um you know back when it first came out well that's not the perspective that i'm bringing to the table what i'm you know the baggage that i'm gonna have is that you know this stuff is you know totally new uh uh, for me 
and so I may or may not have the same perspective as you. And anyway, I just I think there's a lot of uh, potential here for you know some good discussion. And so I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. But you know, at least for right now, that is the plan. And like I said, plans change all the time. So. Just because I've talked about it here doesn't absolutely mean I'm guaranteeing that it's going to happen. I just want you guys to know that this is, you know, if everything had to, you know, come out right now, that's basically the structure that I would, that I, that I would try to adhere to. So, who knows what this is actually going to end up, you know, uh, turning out to be, but that's what I've got uh, in mind for it right now. So, hopefully that all makes sense. So. So anyway, so that's that. So I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages so I can talk about Ultimate Spider-Man numbers 1 through 7. And the uh, title of that storyline is Power and Responsibility. He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years. And that's why I've decided to give him his due in taking flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder. And every episode, I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. Teenage Anarchist. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter... I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. 
check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, I'm back now and talking about Ultimate Spider-Man number 1 through 7, the storyline of which is called Power and Responsibility. Now, I'm sure most of you know this already, but just for the record, let me say that Ultimate Marvel is an imprint of Marvel comic books, featuring reimagined and updated versions of the company's superhero characters, including Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, and others. The Ultimate Marvel imprint was launched in 2000 with the publication of Ultimate Spider-Man and Ultimate X-Men, giving new origins for the characters. The universe has been designated as Earth-1610 within the Marvel multiverse, which comprises an infinite number of alternate universes. So... Basically, what's going on here is Marvel wanted to give younger, or maybe just newer, readers an access point to their characters. So, to that end, they created the Ultimate line to update, reinterpret, and sometimes completely fucking reinvent characters. And the idea here was to modernize some aspects of these characters' origins. Still... Marvel didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater completely, so they maintained the regular Marvel 16 or 616 universe while also publishing Ultimate Marvel as a kind of separate parallel project. Now, one thing you can't say is that M- Ultimate Marvel hasn't been influential. As a matter of fact, one of the few gripes that anybody seems to have is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe maybe borrows a little too liberally from the Ultimate Universe, but I don't know, maybe that's just a topic for another time. But for right now, let it be said that Ultimate Spider-Man came along at just the right time for me as a comics reader. You see, as I've said before, I gave Spider-Man fandom my dead-level best effort back in the 90s. Unfortunately for me, though, the Spider titles were in the armpit of the Clone Saga. And let's face it, the Clone Saga's a pretty shitty time to try getting into Spider-Man. But that's the hand I was dealt, so I was determined to make the most of it. And, you know, even now, I don't think it was a completely wasted effort. I mean, right as the Clone Saga got well underway, Peter went through a pretty intense crisis of identity where he reflected on his life up to that point, you know, the choices he'd made and all of that stuff, and he basically just started wondering if any of this was even worth it. And a big part of that involved Spider-Man basically breaking into Midtown High and going on this sort of weird Navajo spirit quest where the reader gets to see some flashback to uh, flashbacks to the uh, high school years. Now, this was a story that was published in the 90s that we're talking about here, and it's flashing back to Peter's high school years. 
but he graduated from high school back in Amazing Spider-Man number 28 from 1965. So I pretty much missed a good chunk of Peter's high school career. You know, the entire context for his moping and whining in that story. But notwithstanding, I always thought it'd be cool if Marvel could revisit that era somehow, but from a more modern standpoint. You see, I was a freshman in high school at the time myself, and honestly, I thought there was a lot of mojo to the idea of publishing new stories about Spider-Man when he's in high school. And as it happens, it was only a few months later that Untold Tales of uh, Spider-Man came out. And it's kind of funny, you know, while that scratched the itch for me a little bit, what I realized is that Kurt Busiek, for better or worse, was pretty much stuck with following the same basic trajectory that Stan Lee had already set down. Plus, as I said before, Untold Tales of Spider-Man was a throwback to 60s comics in a lot of ways. It, it wasn't really an update of anything. Now, look, here's the deal. I think every comic book fan out there imagines how cool it'd be if the comics comp- uh, companies did this or they did that. You know, uh, comic book collector, you know, he reads some storyline or issue or something and, and thinks, man, wouldn't it kick ass if they went in this other direction over here with this same exact idea? But usually you really don't get a chance to see how that'd play out. And that's why Ultimate Spider-Man felt like such a vindication for me in some ways. Anyway, that's probably about as good a way to segue into the story as anything, so here it goes. Power and Responsibility, Ultimate Spider-Man number 1 through 7, which was originally published from October of 2000 to May of 2001. Writer is Brian Michael Bendis. Penciler is Mark Bagley. Basically, summary goes like this. Peter Parker gets bitten by a genetically mutated spider during a class visit to Osborne Industries. The spider was part of the scientific experimentations that were going on there. Norman Osborne decides to track Peter's progress. And after several instances of fainting and uh, displaying extraordinary strength and reflexes, Peter realizes that the bite from the spider gave him powers. On one occasion, Peter breaks the hand of his bully, Flash Thompson. When Flash's family decides to sue, Peter becomes part of a local wrestling circuit billed as the masked Amazing Spider-Man, quote-unquote, to anonymously pay for his Aunt May and Uncle Ben's legal fees. Peter also gets his Spider-Man suit courtesy of the wrestling organization. He doesn't reveal this secret double life to anybody, not even his crush Mary Jane Watson and his best friend Harry Osborne. Peter flees the wrestling organization, though, after being accused of stealing. Pissed off about it, he allows a burglar to escape after robbing a deli. Peter then returns to home, where his aunt and uncle berate him for his uh, uh, falling academic grades. Ben informs Peter that with great power comes great responsibility. 
the same eth- uh, ethos that Peter's father abided by. Peter runs away after cussing Uncle Ben out, only to return later on to find that his Uncle Ben has been murdered by the exact same burglar that Peter let go and let escape earlier. Peter tracks down Ben's killer, subdues him, and hands the killer over to the police, now understanding fully what Uncle Ben had had told him just a while ago. Meanwhile, Norman Osborne injects himself with an Oz formula, gaining confidence by tracking the effects the spider formula had on Peter. As a result, Norman turns into the monstrous Green Goblin. The Goblin destroys the lab, kills several scientists, and leaves Dr. Otto Octavius, another scientist, leaves them all for dead. All this is seen by Harry Osborne, who runs home to find his mother dead and his house in flames, noticing his father's goblin form leaving the scene. Peter, having now invented web shooters for his alter ego Spider-Man, goes back to school to find the Green Goblin destroying the place. After a small skirmish in the school, Spider-Man leads the Goblin to the bridge where the NYPD confront him. The Green Goblin is then shot off the bridge. The NYPD also turn on Spider-Man, who retreats. Peter goes back to the school, using the excuse that he'd been crushed under a chalkboard. Meanwhile, Harry moves to live with relatives elsewhere. So, what did I think? Honestly, at the time that this stuff was coming out, I really enjoyed it. Like I said before, I thought there was some serious mojo to the idea of updating Spider-Man's origin story for uh, the modern day. Basically, the things that were sort of dated and 60s type stuff. Basically, finding a way to make that, I don't know, current. And I don't mean that from the point of view that, you know, the 60s stuff is just so lame and, you know, things were so stupid back then and all of that. I I don't mean it like that. I mean, just more that there's a, I don't know, just a, a sort of updated and more modern... Uh, context for all of this stuff. Uh, more modern characterizations and all of that stuff. And, I don't know, it just... So reading through all of this stuff for the first time, it really worked for me. But, you know, I gotta tell you, I did have, uh, you know, a few quibbles about it. You know, uh, I guess more in retrospect. I mean, like, I, like I've said before, even now, I don't really consider myself to be the biggest Spider-Man fan in the entire world. But, I don't know. I There are just certain things that I felt really could have been done. I don't, I don't know if I want to say better, but what's better? But it's just there was, I don't know. Uh, here's a good example of what I'm talking about, all right? Um, basically, Peter fucks up Flash Thompson's hand, right? And... Uh, and really, what you need to understand is that Peter is the victim in all of this, all right? Uh, Flash uh, was basically, you know, running game on uh, Mary Jane, and obviously she wasn't really into that. So Peter chunked a basketball at Flash and, you know, basically beans him right in the head. Not all that hard, but enough to get his attention. And then, you know... Later on, Flash, you know, tries to pick a fight with Peter over it. And Peter, it's not even a fight. I mean, all Peter does is just dodge uh, Flash's uh, punches and everything. And 
you know, when Peter catches Flash's fist, it just breaks his hand, you know? And because of that, Flash's family decides to sue the Parkers. And that's basically why Peter became a pro wrestler. And, you know, he was using basically his wrestling gig to earn money to pay off... uh, uh, to pay uh, to to pay down all of the legal bills and everything. <clears throat> Here's the thing. All of these things are they put Peter in a uh, pretty sympathetic light, and I'm not saying that. See, I want to be careful on how I say this. I'm not saying that Peter has to be written like a complete asshole because I don't really think that's the case, but the fact is. Amazing Fantasy number 15 shows Peter Parker getting powers, and then he pretty much goes on this ego trip where he becomes a wrestler, and he's he is in it for himself. He doesn't care about anybody else. He doesn't care about um, doing the right thing or, be, or, or using his powers to protect other people or anything like that. Basically, everything comes down to Peter Parker going on a massive ego trip. And so... He ends up paying the price for this. You know, Peter's not a hero. It's not his job, you know, to stop would-be, you know, robbers and thieves and all that kind of stuff. It That's not his thing. You know, Peter is out to take care of himself. He's out to take care of, you know, uh, Aunt May and Uncle Ben. And really, everybody else, they can all go fuck themselves for all Peter cares. So, so that's that. And that is just... It's basically Peter having to learn a very hard lesson. You know, there are some very hard truths that, you know, Peter needs to get uh, needs to get through his thick skull in Amazing Fantasy number 15. And it takes the death of Uncle Ben to drive all that home for him, right? And so, now, the issue here is that in Ultimate Spider-Man... We don't really get that. Peter really is the victim in all of this. I mean, yeah, he does showboat, you know, with his powers. He does join the basketball team. You know, he does he, he does eventually enjoy the, you know, kind of the fruits of being, I don't know, a success, of, you know, of, of being popular and everything. But all of this <clears throat> really comes from uh, Peter... Basically, he he was pushed and he was put in a, into a really bad situation, right? Um, he didn't start the fight with Flash. Uh, Flash came at him. All Peter did was protect Mary Jane, you know, really from somebody who's acting like a complete dipshit, you know? And then Peter is ultimately the one who has to suffer for it. I mean, Peter is kind of victimized by all this. Now, like I said... Yeah, he does end up enjoying the moment and everything, but it, it kind of puts him, it puts his character into a, into a pretty different context when all's said and done that Amazing Fantasy number 15 just doesn't have. Peter acted like a complete asshole in that story, in Amazing Fantasy number 15, whereas right here in Ultimate Spider-Man, he's kind of a victim of circumstance. I mean, really, you know, life just kind of pushed him in directions he wasn't expecting, and... And he had to make the uh, make the best of it with you know with what he had to work with at the time, and that substantially changes the entire dynamic of who this character is at his core level. It's the difference between 
I guess to put it in a different context, Thomas and Martha Wayne getting shot to death in an alley in front of, you know, eight-year-old Bruce Wayne, and there's nothing, there's jack shit he can do about it, and then, you know, it's the difference between that, and then also, maybe Thomas and Martha Wayne dying from a heart attack while, you know, Bruce, you know, is like 16 years old, he's some kind of party kid, he's out there living the high life and everything, and he could have saved them. If he'd been home, but no, he was out getting drunk. Well, as powerful as that story might be, it puts Bruce Wayne into a completely different emotional context now. And and so and, and I don't think that would necessarily work to the benefit of the character. And I I would be surprised if I'm not the only one who feels that way, you know? A lot of people would probably agree that, you know, if you tell that type of uh, Batman story, you're basically completely changing who Batman is and what he's all about. And so, anyway, I don't know. It's it's one of those things, it's not worth, you know, nitpicking and griping over and all that, but I'm just saying that it is a big difference as compared to what had come before. And so what we're seeing here is not really an updating of the Spider-Man origin story, it's a reimagining of it. And you know what? I'm fine with that, but let's just call it what it is. I mean, Peter, I think, ultimately ends up in the same place. It's just that the circumstances that brought him there are completely different from what we're used to. It's, I, don't want, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's a completely different character, but it's, like I said, it's, it's a completely different context for Spider-Man. And so, anyway... Now, that's not to say that, you know, every single part of this thing is full of, uh, you know, quibbles and problems and all that stuff. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, I happen to think, if I haven't made it clear by now, that I happen to think that Brian Michael Bendis is actually an incredibly talented writer. And he came up with a lot of solid ideas, uh, you know, for Ultimate Spider-Man. And one of them, as logical as it is, it never would have occurred to me, and that is... Linking Dr. Octopus's origin with the Green Goblins. And so I just thought that was that was a nice touch. Because honestly, how many lab accidents can really happen in, 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 in one city? And this is basically a, a really easy and convenient way of overcoming all that. Now the dark side to all of that is the Green Goblin himself. I'm not sure that I like this sort of hulking, mindless beast version of uh, the Green Goblin more than the original. To me, the original Green Goblin, the entire charm of that was the fact that it's ultimately Harry Osborn behind the mask. Harry Osborn, the rational, relatively speaking, rational thinking individual who's basically calling the shots. And he's pretty much just taken a page out of Spider-Man's book and adopted a secret identity in order to do whatever the hell he wants to do. And you don't really get that here. What This is basically an out-of-control freak. It's a, it's a lab experiment gone wrong. You know, the things that went right just by a, a fluke of circumstances with Peter getting bitten by the uh, genetically mutated spider and then developing spider powers, everything that went right with Peter goes wrong with Norman. And again, I mean, that's, that's fine, but it's just, this, again, com- cha- completely changes the entire context that this character exists in now. 
And so, and like I say, it's not worth, you know, getting angry over or anything like that. It's just, it's just this sort of, there's a difference, there, there's a sort of reinvention of who this character is and what he's all about that it's it's like Brian Michael Bendis is sort of refusing to acknowledge. And so, anyway, it, again, it's not worth over-analyzing over or picking apart or throwing a fit over or anything like that. I'm just saying it's real, it's there, and it needs to be remarked upon. So, there you go. Said my piece. So, uh, now, I guess sort of moving away from all of that, I really did like seeing... Uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May being portrayed not young, but younger. You know, they're less. Th- I always got the impression from reading old, uh, well, specifically from reading Amazing Fantasy number 15, but really just that sort of 60s era of Spider Man, that whole time period, that they were sort of grandparents almost, as far as their age is concerned. They were pretty far up there as far as age is concerned. And what Ultimate Spider-Man does is push him back a good 10 or 15 years. They're more like late middle age now as opposed to in their golden years. And so, you know, they're not helpless, doddering, you know, feeble-minded old people. They're just basically a family that's struggling to make the best of a, let's face it, a pretty shitty situation. And then you have Peter acting sort of like a typical bratty teenager and this is what typical bratty teenagers do and i don't know uh, just on the whole it, it this is one of those changes and i do regard this as a change but this is one of those changes that it really does work for me and there are several homages to amazing fantasy number 15 the most prominent of which that i saw was peter getting nearly hit by a car but then using his spider powers to avoid it. Now, in Amazing Fantasy number 15, what you kind of assume is that the car that nearly hit Peter, it's like it was an accident. It was out of control, and it was just a million-to-one shot, and it's a good thing Peter had spider powers or he would have been street pizza. Here, this was a uh, coordinated hit, sort of. Uh, Basically, someone was trying to uh, capture Peter... And he, basically by dumb luck, he was able to use his pi- his uh, spider powers to escape. And so, you know, that's that's pretty much that. I just thought it was a nice touch. It's one of those things that I think if you're at all familiar with Amazing Fantasy number 15, you can pretty much identify it right away. And so there's that. Now, all through this story, you have a lot of trademark Brian Michael Bendis uh, type of uh, dialogue. And... I think, you know, a good example of that is on uh, uh, page one, or sorry, issue one. Uh, You know, this is to say the first issue. And God forbid these people... Why is it that comic book companies feel like they don't have to number their pages anymore? I mean, what the fuck? Anyway, it's basically Aunt May, Uncle Ben, and Peter sitting down for uh, dinner. And Aunt May serves banana bread. And just the whole exchange that they have there is... It's typically Brian Michael Bendis, but at the same time, I don't know why it just it works for me. I, I 
I kind of like this kind of snarky, sarcastic dialogue. Now, I don't know if it's necessarily appropriate for everything, but it does it does play for me overall, and so I, I just really dig that scene. Um, another thing that Brian Michael Bendis does is he starts in in the, right here in this first story arc, uh, he starts giving us a little bit more of a scientific explanation for what uh, Peter's powers are and how they work. And so it gets developed more in later issues. Uh, we see a lot more of this in issues to come. But a lot of that actually starts right here. And I think maybe the best example is uh, when Peter is at the uh, doctor's office and uh, he gets stuck with that syringe. And, you know, because obviously Peter's been passing out, and so people want to know what, just what the hell's going on with him. And so uh, they basically end up having to use a... Uh, a, a, a <clears throat> stronger, thicker uh, hypodermic needle uh, to uh, penetrate his skin because it's a lot thicker now. So from the outset, you know, that kind of tells us that all those times that you saw Spider-Man get slammed through a brick wall, well, people, as far as I know, in the Marvel 616 universe, it's never been said that Spider-Man is invulnerable. Right, and so if he were to get slammed through a brick wall, or if he punches through it, or something like that, he's gonna fuck himself up bad, because yeah, he may have super strength, but super strength and invulnerability don't necessarily go hand in hand. So here, and it's just kind of a blink and you miss it moment, but here you get an explanation for how some supervillain could slam Peter through a brick wall without Peter dying in the process. He's just got thick skin. He's not really invulnerable as such. He's just tougher than the average person. So maybe, you know, something that would injure or maybe even cripple or kill the common man. That is something that Peter can now just kind of shrug off. And so anyway, it's and again, he doesn't go overboard with the detail of it or anything like that. He basically just. Uh, gives us enough that we can extrapolate the rest for ourselves. And honestly, I think that's probably the best way to do it because I think a lot of writers, they end up kind of writing themselves into a little bit of a corner whenever they try to give these overly laborious scientific explanations and all of these exact limitations and all these sorts of things about how powers work and you know when they work, circumstances, weaknesses, all of that kind of stuff. And here, we basically get enough, we, we get enough to go on but it doesn't detract from the story. It's only like a page or two long. Really, actually, it's just a couple of panels. And then that's it. And so the other thing that Bendis does pretty well is sell Peter's discovery of his powers. I mean, there's the shock of it. You know, how in the hell am I, am I doing all of this stuff? But there's ultimately a very... I don't know about gleeful, but Peter's ultimately very happy to have spider powers. You know, because how cool would that be? You know, you can, you've got spider sense. You've got, you're, you're so much stronger than anybody else. You know, you, you've got this incredible agility. You can climb up walls with your hands and feet. You know, I mean, how awesome is that? And this isn't really a source for alienation for Peter, at least not at first. At first, it's the, the coolest thing that, you know, that's ever happened to him, and he has fun with it. 
And I think a lot of people would. I mean, the whole idea of somebody angsting over the fact that they have powers, that's one of those things that, I'll be honest, I have always kind of related to. Because, guys, if I had the ability to fly, rest assured, you'd never hear me complain about it. Well, actually, you'd never hear me talk about it. I'd probably just keep that to myself. But you can rest assured, I would never bitch and complain about it. I mean, how cool would that be, you know? And <clears throat> and that's kind of the attitude that, that Peter has about it here. And it just it, it plays incredibly well that, you know... That and it, it intermixed with all of this kind of dramatic high school teenager bullshit, you know, there's a fairly relatable story, even for adults, of a kid discovering that he's got powers, and that's just kind of fucking cool. So, anyway, that stuff, uh, that all just plays for me uh, incredibly well. Now... As I've sifted through all of this stuff, uh, one of the things I haven't really talked all that much about is the covers of Amazing uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Sorry, forgive me. Ultimate Spider-Man. And the reason for that is because I'm just not really fond of these covers. I mean, they're okay for what, I guess, for what they are. But at the same time, there's just, I don't know, there's just something missing Basically, a lot of uh, Ultimate Marvel issues uh, and comics and series and stuff at, at this time, they had a sort of common trade dress to them. And what, ended, what would end up happening is that you have this sort of narrow cover image that has uh, vertical borders on each side. And then it's obvious, I think it's kind of a tempting thing for any artist is to have the character sort of reaching beyond the borders, like he's springing off the cover. And I can see where that would be a, a, a powerful artistic effect. The problem is that these covers are just kind of boring. Um, the first, uh, issue number one, isn't really that bad. It's basically a sort of generic uh, glory shot of Spider-Man swinging through what looks like Times Square in New York, and so I guess that's cool. I just, I don't know, it's just got this weird sort of Photoshop blurring to it and all this other stuff. I just, I, I don't think this image is as effective as it could be, and it doesn't help the fact that Spider-Man's proportions are way off. Now, I'm all for having a, a Spider-Man that has, you know, sort of weird, lanky proportions, but this is just going way over the top. The cover for issue number two, I wish I could say it's better, but it's not. It looks like it's basically a photograph, and then it's got an illustrated Spider-Man on top of it in this weird sort of pose, like he's doing this, I don't know, like a yoga stance or a crouching ballerina thing on the hood of, uh, on the hood of uh, this car. And I don't know just what the fuck this thing is even supposed to be. It's just, it's just weird looking. It's... Uh, things get a little bit better with the cover for issue number three, where you have Spider-Man sort of crawling down a uh, building, right? At least I'm assuming it's down. It looks like it's a sky at the top of... It's the sky at the uh, top of the cover, so I'm, assume, uh, I'm assuming that Spider-Man is crawling down. But anyway, it's just... It works great until you realize just how fucked up the proportions of Spider-Man's thighs are. And again, I kind of like the idea... I, I kind of like the uh, concept, or at least the uh, the aesthetic, of a lanky Spider-Man that has sort of you know weird proportions and just 
it's just fucked up looking and everything. That works for me. But this is going, this is pushing the limits even for me. I mean, this is just weird looking. And it's a little bit better with uh, the fourth issue. It's basically Spider-Man opening a window, it looks like, at the high school. And it looks like, I don't know. It, it, I, I guess the most I can say for it is that it actually has a real drawn background now which is another building, but still there's a, there's an actual illustrated background here as opposed to a photograph. So I don't know. At least there's that. The fifth issue is once again, Spider-Man crawling around on a building. It's just a really generic, uh, image, but at least in this case, Spider-Man's, uh, proportions are starting to become, I think a little bit more normal for him, which is a totally relative thing, but it's, uh, it looks like it's an improvement, at least to me. So it is my podcast, so what I think is what matters here. So uh, the sixth issue, this looks like it's sort of an homage to Marvel's. I remember, and I'm forgetting which issue was Spider-Man's issue, but there was an issue of Marvel's. It's basically an extreme close-up of the uh, lens on Spider-Man's mask, and you can see a reflection of the Green Goblin in it. And that is what this thing actually sort of reminds me of. So... You know, that works for me. But at the same time, this really wasn't your idea. Now, was it, Mr. Bagley? So, I don't know. Anyway, the seventh issue and the final one that we're talking about in uh, in this uh, episode is uh, it's a, a more generic cover. It's a, Rather, it's another generic cover, but at least in this case, it's the Green Goblin. And he's just kind of bobbing around in midair. But at least it's not Spider-Man doing... I don't know, just some type of generic Spider-Man pose you've seen a thousand times already. And so, I don't know, at least there's that. So, now, I don't want anybody to interpret this as me bashing on Mark Bagley, because I am a Mark Bagley fanboy. Mark Bagley was basically getting started on Spider-Man right around the time I was trying to uh, become a Spider-Man fan, right? Which, again, that's a story I've told before, so I'm not going to belabor it here. But, you know, there's a, uh, a theory. I forget who, who uh, first said this, but somebody said that, you know, the first Peter Pan that you see is going to be your Peter Pan for life, you know? So whether that's the J.M. Barry Peter Pan or the Disney Peter Pan or, or whoever, that's Peter Pan for you now, you know? And I think the same is true for comic book characters. You know, the first... The first one that you see has a funny way of imprinting itself on you somehow. And Mark Bagley was the first Spider-Man artist I really paid attention to. And like I said, it was early on when I was trying to become a Spider-Man fan that I, you know, glommed onto his art. And again, this was like, I want to say it was like the early 90s when I first noticed it. And... Ever since then, I've been a Mark Bagley fanboy. I mean, I think Mark Bagley is to Spider-Man what Kurt Swan is to Superman. I mean, he's that definitive artist that characters get once in a while. And once in a while, that definitive artist will stay, you know, stay on the character for a pretty extended run and really put his mark on the character. Now, look, obviously, I've got nothing, nothing at all against... Mark Bagley's work on uh, Spider-Man from the 90s, you know, on Amazing Spider-Man, I think that stuff is top shelf, and I can't say a word to criticize it. I think it's just, I think it's amazing stuff. It's really perfect for Spider-Man. And in fact, I kind of regard Mark Bagley 
as a slightly more cartoony and exaggerated version of uh, Tom Grummet. I see a lot of similarities between Mark Bagley and uh, Tom Grummet, at least as far as line style is concerned. But for as good as Mark Bagley always was, I'm, and I mean from the get-go, as good as he always was, man, he has improved his game so much by the time of this first arc and amazing... I keep saying Amazing Spider-Man, I'm sorry. Uh, here in Ultimate Spider-Man. He has improved so much. I honestly didn't think that, you know, there was much for him to improve. But, you know, being very familiar with his art and then picking up uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, you know, when this stuff was coming out, especially when the trades really just started getting, you know, just... They were just starting to, you know, crank those out. I recognized Mark Bagley's name. I definitely recognized the art. And it just hit me, you know, this really is the ultimate Spider-Man for me. I mean, Mark Bagley's Spider-Man... Look, people can say what they like about John Romita, which is to say John Romita Sr. And look, I'll listen to it. I think he's a he, he's an incredibly talented artist. His work on Spider-Man, it's... I, again, I can't say anything uh, against that either, you know. And Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, uh, Sal Buscema, you know, Spider-Man has had shitloads of incredibly talented artists draw him over the years. But for my money, it begins and ends with Mark Bagley. And when it comes to Spider-Man, I'm truly of the opinion Mark Bagley can do no wrong. And his art in the in these issues it, it truly is the perfect companion to the the uh, to Brian Michael Bendis's writing style you know this is the type of art that's the perfect accompany, uh, accompaniment to it it's the i don't know the the sort of there's this weird alchemy that takes place when the right artist is paired up with the right writer there's this weird third element that takes place that I think is true collaboration. And I think that's especially true here because my understanding is that the way that Brian Michael Bendis writes uh, scripts, so to speak, I'm using that in, in, in quotes there, the way that Brian Michael Bendis writes is he usually has something like three or four or five pages of dialogue. These are the things that must be said and other than that, the artist can do pretty much anything he wants, you know. And maybe he has a, a basic idea of a plot, but this is this really is Marvel method on overdrive as far as you know writing style is concerned. And so this this I think is true collaboration between writer and artist now. And so maybe it's not a surprise that you know Ultimate Spider-Man brings into you know brings brings out the best of. Uh, of uh, Mark Bagley. Maybe that shouldn't be a surprise, but it's it just kind of feels like it just goes that that extra that extra step beyond, you know, what I read from uh, Mark Bagley in the past. You know, and again, I am not picking on Mark Bagley's old work. I think all that stuff, it's as good now as it was back then. I'm just saying I think his art has improved so much uh just in the what was it? Like the 5 or 6 years between his work on Amazing Spider-Man and his work on Ultimate Spider-Man, he went through some incredible fucking growth as an artist. And that doesn't always come to the artist's benefit. I mean, I think there are circumstances aplenty where an artist grows and evolves, and it doesn't necessarily go in the right direction.
John Romita Jr., I'm looking pretty much right at you. But in Mark Bagley's case, it really does go right to the heart of, uh, I don't know, just his growth as an artist. I mean, it's so... He has grown and improved so much just in the couple of years he was away from Spider-Man. I mean, you know, it's still recognizably Bagley, don't get me wrong, but it's just... Man, it's just so much better. And in fact, there's this one moment, I want to say it's in the seventh issue. Forgive me, I'm actually going to try and dig it up right now. But um, it's basically uh, Spider-Man and Green Goblin are just, you know, throwing down with each other. And it's, I don't, it's not a two-page splash in, in the sense that it's one panel stretched across two pages. Rather... Bagley actually does extend the story all the way from the left page going across to the right page. And it's rare when artists do that and it works. But in this case, it does. It's totally uh, organic to the story. And it's actually easy to read because of the, the way he structures the panels. There's only one way that your eye wants to go with it. And it's the rare artist who can really pull this off and make it look good. But Bagley did it here, so, you know, kudos to you, sir. So, and there's a, uh, like I say, it's basically, it's uh, the Green Goblin, he's on top of the bridge, he jumps off, and then you, you see Kong shout, man, you see that? I, I think that thing is coming back this way. And 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 then uh, Spider-Man, he's all swinging around and uh, on his uh, new web shooters, and then at the, uh, at the bottom of the right-hand page, he crashes into the uh, Green Goblin from behind. And it's just a very well put together page on a on a technical basis, you know. It doesn't. It, it's not like the the greatest you know pin up in the in in the whole world or anything. It's just pure, unapologetic storytelling. And it's the it's the type of craftsmanship that I'm sorry, you just don't see a whole lot in comics, uh, especially these days. And. Uh, you know, and on top of all of that, I mean, Bagley's work—it's—it's it's powerful, it's emotive, it's—it's it's expressive. When Spider-Man has his showdown with Uncle Ben's killer, that moment of realization, of recognition, when—when when he realizes that he could have stopped this guy, and didn't. In the movies, they invariably choose to take Spider-Man's mask off during this moment, right? Because you need to see the actor emote and you know, show his shock and outrage. And Bagley keeps Spider-Man's mask on throughout this whole sequence, and you still get the emotion of the scene because that's that's how good he is. And again, I happen to think it's probably the rare artist that would do that. I think most artists would prefer to... <clears throat> they'd prefer to actually take Spider-Man's mask off so that you can see you know the shock and pain and anguish and regret and all that stuff just you know see that right on his face and the emotion of it and stuff and you know this actually sort of works better because his reaction is now left to your imagination i mean bagley knew when to pull back on this and let the readers fill in the fill in the blanks and i think it works incredibly well so you know all around kudos to you mr bagley and mr bendis so uh, now, as to the future, like I said, I don't have a, a specific, at least I don't think I've got a, a specific date for it yet, but I'm going to be revisiting Ultimate Spider-Man. Again, it's much later on down the line. In fact, it's probably going to be next year, 
like I said earlier, it's gonna uh, I'm gonna do that Brian Michael Bendis appreciation series where I talk about you know all the uh, well not all but several Brian Michael Bendis comics that honestly are some of my favorite comics. I think these turned out extraordinarily well, and I think the criticism. Uh, that a lot of people have of Brian Michael Bendis is unwarranted, and I intend to prove that in uh, in, in that Brian Michael Bendis appreciation series. But again, that's going to be sometime next year. I don't even have a, an exact release date for that yet. I'm I'm going to guesstimate, I don't know, like May of 2016. It's tough to say, but I maybe I don't know. That sounds right. March, April, May. It's around there, and. Uh, I'm going to be coming back to this when I pick up Ultimate Spider-Man number 8 to 13. That storyline's entitled Learning Curve. So I am going to come back to this. And, and I know I say that all the time. Yeah, I'm going to be coming back to this shit in the future, but then I never do. Well, this time I am, and I've actually got a plan to do it. So, you know, there's a lot to be said there. So, but anyway, it's just, it's not going to be anytime soon. And it's also not going to be done in the context of... Well, it's not a Spider-Man miniseries. It's going to be a Bendis miniseries, but, you know, same difference. So, anyway, so I think that's pretty much that. So, I think that's all or most of what I've got to say about Ultimate Spider-Man, at least for the moment. So, I'm going to be right back after these messages. I'm just going to take a break. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Oh, 
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so... Why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.